please open in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. And if you'll stand, we'll be reading verses 1 through 12 and really finishing out our discussion on the Beatitudes. There's much more of the Sermon on the Mount, but we're going to finish in, I think, what we'll find to be rather stunning fashion when it comes to the Beatitudes, something that maybe is a bit unexpected. So Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, when Jesus saw the crowds, He went up on the mountain, and after He sat down, His disciples came to Him. He opened His mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Please be seated. John Christostom A godly leader in the 4th century church preached so strongly against sin that he offended the empress as well as most of the church officials of his day. When summoned before the emperor Arcadius, Chrysostom was threatened with banishment if he did not cease his uncompromising preaching. His response was, sire, you cannot banish me for the world is my father's house. Then I will slay you, said Arcadius. Nay, uh, but you cannot for my life is hid with Christ and God, came the answer. Your treasures will be confiscated, was the next threat. To which John replied, Sire, that cannot be either. My treasures are in heaven, where none can break through and steal. And I will drive you from man, and you will have no friends left, was the final desperate warning. That you cannot do either, answered John, for I have a friend in heaven who has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Christostom was indeed banished, first to Armenia and then further away to Pityus, which is on the Black Sea. And he never arrived there because he died on the way. But neither his banishment nor his death disproved or diminished his claims. The things that he valued most highly, not even an emperor could take from him. Kingdom living will bring persecution because the world hates the king. We are to make the king known in every way possible so that we do not shrink back from the privileges of suffering for his kingdom. And what we'll see specifically this morning is that The true kingdom living brings joyful suffering as we pour out our lives in serving our King who suffered for us. Again, true kingdom living brings joyful suffering as we pour out our lives in serving our King who suffered for us. And if you've been following along in the Beatitudes here week after week as we've moved through them, now you're most likely familiar with where we were headed because we've been reading it each week. But perhaps again, it it comes, and and really I think for all of us at some levels, it comes as a bit of a jolt to learn that if we're poor in spirit, if we recognize our bankruptcy, that we have nothing to offer before a holy God, and we live that way in the kingdom, if we mourn over our sin, hating it, not cultivating the, the, the secret pleasures of sin, but setting them aside, grieving over them, if we're gentle, humbling our own will underneath the will of a holy God and never exerting more force than He would have us to, never seeking to gain our own will but always desiring His if we're gentle, if we hunger and thirst for righteousness, longing that we would know and understand the character of God and live out those characteristics, if we're merciful, longing to see that others would be delivered from the, the difficulties that they, that they deserve, if we're pure in heart, growing 
in Christ-likeness, our hearts being, being conformed more and more to the image of Christ. And if we're peacemakers, that was last week, if we seek to not just want peace, but actually do everything we can to resolve conflict, to be at peace with all men, it stuns us to find that when all that is true, the final beatitude is this. You've done all that. You've been part of the kingdom. You've been blessed. And now the final crowning achievement is that you get persecuted. Well, it's like, wait a minute. We need a, we need a different scripture. We need a different word. We need someone to write a different book than this. We need the books that are out there on how we can have health, wealth, and prosperity. We need to hear that if we are, are serving God, if we honor Him and please Him, then our lives will be fulfilled, our families will be happy, our marriages will be perfect, our, our churches will have no problems. But that isn't what Jesus says. That's not the message of the kingdom. The message is that if you perform all seven Beatitudes, the eighth will surely come. It is inevitable. The Scripture is clear. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So let's look at that first, the reality of persecution. Now, we can't make it past the first word of the Beatitude, blessed, and particularly when it comes to this one, because I'll remind you that to be blessed is to be happy and highly favored. It is a joyful contentedness which flows from being the recipient of God's loving, kind, and unmerited favor. And as we look at these other Beatitudes, I'm like, well, I can understand that if I'm poor in spirit, if I'm gentle, all those other things. But how is it that I am receiving God's loving, kind, unmerited favor when I'm persecuted? I don't like that one. That one doesn't make any sense. And, and, and the rest of that, the definition, a joyful contentedness, if I'm being persecuted, how is it that I can be joyfully content? And now, if you've been a believer for very long, you're aware of these things. You know that, that this is the teaching of the Bible. And yet, for Americans, this teaching tends to come at, at a very light price. It tends not to be very weighty. Like joyfulness and suffering, okay, I, I can get that. I can, you know, maybe someone will, will get mad at me or, you know, maybe I won't have all that I want because I'm a Christian. But you know, I can still be joyful and contented. But how about if your children are being murdered? How about if your family is being uprooted and your homes are being destroyed? This takes on a little bit sharper tone, does it not? That we should be joyfully contented, recognizing that we are the recipients of God's loving, gracious, unmerited favor when people are killed, when our lives are taken, when we are beaten, and when we are tortured? The answer is yes. The question is, how? And so let's look a bit at this as we step it through. The reality is this, really, that the language gives it to us. Blessed are those who have been persecuted. It's an interesting construction. I won't give you a, a grammar lesson because I really don't understand grammar all that well myself, actually. I do the best I can as I study and preach, but I'm not here to say, well, let me tell you all about the Greek language and all its participles. And, but I will say this, the way that this is constructed really enables us to translate, or we could say it more like this, Blessed are those who allow themselves to be persecuted. It's called a, a passive sense. There's a passive portion of the verb, which is that it is those who are blessed who constantly live with an anticipation that they will be persecuted. It speaks of it as though it is in the past tense. It has already happened. You've already gone through it. You're willing for it to come. And you recognize that when it does, this is how you will continue. You will be persecuted and you are blessed. So blessed are those who live with a continuous willingness to endure persecu persecution as it is the price of godly living. 2 Timothy 3.12, which I already mentioned to you, says this, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The Scripture is clear 
that given enough time, and really the moment we become believers, persecution begins. Not necessarily the physical persecution that many receive, and that does begin at the moment they become believers. If you live in the Muslim world and you become a believer, you're removed from your home, or you're killed. It's one of those two. You're, you're considered dead, and that happens in other cultures around the world. So it can, the persecution can begin immediately, but even if you don't see it immediately, it has begun, because the enemy of your soul instantly begins to come against you when you have repented and put faith and trust in Christ. When you're a new creation, that is when His activities on your behalf are activated, whether you can see it directly or immediately or not. He's coming for you. And so the persecution will come. You will be able to see it eventually if you live long enough, but the moment you come to Christ, the persecution begins. Satan is coming for you. Your sinful flesh begins to, to cry out and to testify against you. And ultimately, the culture, when it figures out who you really are, the culture will come for you as well. Because our culture does not love Jesus. So there is a culture of Christianity out there, but it is not the culture of a true passion for Christ to be conformed to His image by humbling ourselves underneath our King in true repentance and belief. So all three of those things start coming against you to ever-increasing degree, your flesh, the devil, and the culture. In fact, what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 3 to a church that he really spent very little time with, three weeks for sure, probably a little bit more before he moved on, the way he preached the gospel to them is not the way that we would normally expect it to be preached. He says this to them. He was writing back to them after having left and continued on himself through great difficulty in his ministry. He writes a letter back to them because they were being persecuted. They were suffering. And he says, I'm writing this letter essentially in in 1 Thessalonians 3 verse 3 so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. They heard about the afflictions that he had and they also were receiving affliction themselves. The pressure was getting ramped up. They were new believers, five months, six months, maybe a little bit more. No one that would be disturbed by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. This is the destiny of the believer, is that the believer suffers. The apostle is saying, Apostle Paul is saying, this is destined for apostles, but it's not just us, it's you as well. Anyone who has put faith and trust in Christ is destined for suffering. He goes on to say, for indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction, and so it came to pass, as you know. You want to be a prophet? You want to predict something that you think will come true? Now, you're not actually a prophet, so don't don't get too excited about this. But you can take Scripture and proclaim it as truth. And if you want to proclaim to people that they will suffer if they are believers, that will come true. In fact, it's already happening in their lives. He said, as we told you before, right, it came to pass. We kept telling you. I mean, is that how you came to Christ? Someone kept telling you in advance. You know, they said, here's Jesus. Here's what He's done. You need to repent. You need to believe. Here's the gospel. That's what Paul did. And then he also said, and oh, when you do that, understand that suffering will come. It's coming for us as the apostles. We're going to suffer. You're going to suffer. It's going to come to pass. I'm I'm preparing you for the suffering that you will most certainly face. And so when it comes to pass, remember, I told you so. I told you it was coming. It shouldn't surprise you, but unfortunately it does. We tend to be continually surprised when things are difficult, when we're persecuted, when the world doesn't like us, when our family members who aren't believers don't want us around, when they call us foolish and they call us idiots and they say, stop coming over at Thanksgiving and trying to tell us about Jesus. We're tired of this. You're always trying to turn the conversation around into the things of Christ. Would you just be quiet? You're driving us crazy. And, and, and we're like, why are you doing this? 
And it's never easy to hear, but it's what you were destined for. You go out and you try to hand out tracts, or you stand on someone's door, or you're preaching on the street, and they come up and say, you're an idiot. What are you doing? I don't want anything to do with this. You're wasting my time. You're wasting your time. Get out of here. I'm like, oh. Now again, that's not easy to face. I'm not saying that. I'm simply saying we've forgotten that that's what we're destined for. And it goes on and on all the way to where someone comes for you and kills your children and drags you off into prison. The Scriptures say that we are destined for this. Thomas Watson, Puritan, writing in the 1700s, said, though, though they be never so meek, speaking of the Beatitudes, though they be never so meek, merciful, or pure in heart, their piety will not shield them from sufferings. They must hang their harps on the willows and take the cross. The way to heaven is by way of thorns and blood. Set it down as a maxim. If you will follow Christ, you must see the swords and the staves. And all throughout history, that has been true. Men who have seen the sword, they've seen the staves, they've been burned at the stake, they've been killed, they've been drowned in those overt physical areas of persecution, but they have been persecuted in every way ultimately. Galatians chapter 4, verse 29, the Apostle Paul speaking really of the battle between the, the spirit and the flesh, that this has always been true. He's speaking here of Abraham and his son by the promise, son through the promise, Isaac, and his son really through the flesh, his own sinfulness, Ishmael, and they fought against each other. He says, that's a picture of the way the flesh is always battling the spirit. And he says in Galatians 4, 29, but as at that time he was born according to the flesh, that would be Ishmael, persecuted him, Isaac, who was born according to the spirit. So it is now also. What you're facing now is what happens. The flesh hates the spirit. And when you have been regenerated, when you are new, when your life is different, the world cannot help but hate you. Persecution will come. It is the destiny of all believers. That's the reality. Well, what's the reason? Why should we be suffering? And here we have to be very clear. We are not supposed to suffer because we're foolish. We're not supposed to, supposed to suffer because we're disobedient, because we're lawbreakers, because we're rebels. Look at the text. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. You're doing 80 miles, on the way to, 80 miles an hour on the way to church because you're late. The policeman stops you, know, stops you, pulls you over. I'm being persecuted. You are not. You're breaking the law. You know, you, you say, well, you know, I don't like taxes, and I don't really like the government, so I'm going to write off this on my tax and write off that that I'm not supposed to, and you get caught. You're going to be persecuted. You're going after me because I'm a Christian. No, you're not. You're a lawbreaker. You broke the law. No credit, no benefit. You're suffering for the wrong reason. Now, we'll see that you can gain benefit from that by responding rightly. You're not supposed to go, well, I did it so I can, I can pout and I can be mad. No, you still have to respond in a godly way, and that will bring blessing, but the original suffering is of no benefit to you in that sense. You're just a lawbreaker. You're just foolish. And in your family, you know, maybe you're just kind of abrasive and, and, and you're irritating. And people go, ah, man, that guy was still, he's irritating. You're like, you're persecuting me because I'm a Christian. No, you're irritating. We talked about last night, love is not unbecoming. It doesn't act unbecomingly. It's not foolish. You guys, we are to suffer only, as it were, for righteousness. You remember Daniel? Daniel worked for 70 years in a pagan government. Uh, all governments are essentially pagan, uh, unless it's Christ himself and he's ruling, that's not a pagan government and, and, and it's believers. But even, in a, even where there are believers, they wrestle with sin. So regardless, he serves for 70 years and then they want to they kick him out. They want to persecute him. They want to they remove him from the government because they hate him. This is as Darius the Mede takes over Babylon and sets up his own, own people to rule. Daniel's one of those. And you remember what happens. They're looking for every grounds against him, everything they can find to remove him from office. Can you, it's kind of the ultimate vetting process. 
right? 70 years worth of government service, and they're looking, and they kept copious notes, copious records, just study the Old Testament. And so they're looking everywhere. Where did he sin? Where did he violate governmental policy? Where did he, where was he, you know, do a backdoor deal that he wasn't supposed to do? Where did he harm someone? They couldn't find it anywhere. 70 years of service. So what did they have to do? They had to make serving God illegal, and then they could get him. You see, that's why you should suffer. If serving God is illegal, well, you're going to suffer for serving God. That's how that works. You should only suffer for righteousness, never because you were sinning or foolish. William Hendrickson says, when the faith of God's children has developed sufficiently to be outwardly manifested so that those who do not share it with them begin to take notice, persecution results. John MacArthur says those who faithfully live according to the first seven Beatitudes are guaranteed at some point to experience the eighth. Those who live righteously will inevitably be persecuted for it. Godliness generates hostility and antagonism from the world. The crowning feature of the happy person is persecution. Kingdom people are rejected people. Holy people are singularly blessed, but they pay the price of persecution for it. Now, at its most basic level, Persecution is inevitable for those for the righteous because they are being conformed to the image of Christ and their Lord and Savior to whom they are conforming was himself persecuted. We are not to expect that we would receive better treatment than our master. We are not to desire to be treated better than our master was. John 15, 20, remember the word I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. To live for Christ is to live in opposition to Satan in his world and in his system. Christ's likeness will produce in us the same results as Christ's likeness did in the apostles, in the rest of the early church, and in believers throughout history. Christ living in his people today produces the same reaction from the world that Christ himself produced when he lived upon the earth, and that was suffering and ultimately death. If persecution, if the world could persecute us far enough, if they could get what they wanted, they would kill us to get us out of the way. We just don't live in a society that allows that here, but they certainly do allow it in other places. You live in North Korea, this is, this is life for you. Some places in China, much of it even today, this could happen to you. Uh, many, many other places in, in much, much of the Muslim world, this will happen if you choose Christ. Now, you might wonder, well, is this kind of a recent phenomenon? Right? We, we can chase it back maybe in the early church, maybe back to Christ, but was it going on before that? Well, I already read Galatians, but how about even back before Abraham and Isaac, how about Cain and Abel? Let's just consider them for a moment. Why is it that these are the first children? In the first family, they fall into sin, and what begins to happen? What's the conflict that begins right after the man falls into sin. 1 John 3, 12. I mean, you know the story. Cain kills Abel. They come to bring a sacrifice. Abel brings a sacrifice that's pleasing to the Lord. Cain's is not. Cain is angry about that, certainly, and he kills Abel. But what's fundamentally going on in his heart? Well, we wouldn't be able to guess and know for sure unless 1 John 3, 12 didn't tell us. It says, we are not to be as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. That's why Cain killed Abel. I can't stand your righteous deeds. I don't want you around. This brings conviction to my evil heart. This assaults my selfishness. It assaults my self-sufficiency. 
It assaults my ability to worship God on my own and do what I want and feel comfortable about that. Your righteousness drives me crazy. I'm going to kill you. And he did. And this is the attitude of sin, of Satan, and of the sinful culture towards believers. It always has been. It always will be. And so for this reason, if believers are not persecuted, there may be a serious problem either in the culture itself that might be pretending to be believing or simply reducing the standards of what it means to believe, or maybe in your own individual life. What, did, what does Luke 6.26 say? We're going to talk at the very end about the fact that we, we suffer in the legacy of the prophets, The true prophets suffered all the way down. Israel's prophets, when they spoke the truth, were killed. But what about the false prophets in Israel? I mean, there were a lot more false prophets than there were real ones. So what, what, kind of, what, what did they experience at the hands of Israel? Well, Luke 6.26 tells us, and this is Jesus speaking to the religious leaders of his day. He says, Woe to you when all men speak well of you, which most men did speak well of the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders. That is, the, the, the Jewish people. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. Don't listen or, or don't feel like you're doing well when the rest of the culture says, You're great. We like you. You can come preach at our, at our church. You can present that kind of gospel to us. That's fine. Come on. We would love to hear you. Watch out because they treated the false prophets the same way. The false prophets, not the real ones. The real prophets, it says at the end of our text here, they killed. The false prophets, they said, you're great. We need some more of that message. Bring, bring that one. And that's what our culture today says as well. Bring the false message. They'll, they'll take any kind of teaching, any kind of preaching, all different varieties, as long as it panders to self-interest and to sin and isn't righteousness. The righteousness of the gospel, the righteousness of holy living, which is what is focused on here. It's not so much justification that is mentioned here. It is your righteous acts, your righteousness, that you are living out your conformity to Christ, that you're living out before a whole, uh, an ungodly culture. And if you are not persecuted, it may be that there is a problem in your own life. The fact that many professed believers are popular and praised by the world does not indicate that the world has raised its standards, that the world is getting more holy, that America is getting more Christian. No, it may well mean that many who call themselves by Christ's name have lowered their standards. We gain no benefit, by the way, from suffering for doing what is wrong. Right? Again, back, back to that point, we must suffer for righteousness. If we're not living righteously, then we probably won't suffer from the world's culture. But when we do what is right, we will. However, we must be very careful, again, that we aren't somehow responding improperly to an ungodly culture and suffering for that. First Peter 2.20 says, For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? There it is. You get, you get no credit. There's no blessing from God in the initial punishment. He's not bringing His blessing upon you. It's not the kind of punishment you're supposed to rejoice in when you sin. What credit is there? You sin, you're harshly treated. The context here is masters and slaves. You can't imagine what it was like to be a slave. I can't really either back in that culture. And the slaves were revolting against that. We will not be treated like this, as you can understand. And so they were committing acts of sin back towards their masters and not doing what their master said and, and justifying it as, as much as could possibly be done. I'm just a slave. I have the right to do this. And they were being punished as a result of that. And it seems like maybe they were crying out to God and saying, God, we're being, we're, we're being persecuted here. And you go, you aren't. There's no credit if you sin and are harshly treated. None. If you endure that with patience, you're still supposed to endure it with patience, but there, there's no credit for the suffering. 
But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps. Righteousness is supposed to produce suffering and will, but unrighteousness that we then suffer for is to be repented of, and then we are to press on in further righteousness. We don't rejoice when we suffer for doing what is wrong. We rejoice when with a clear conscience before God, we suffer because we did what was right. And I might ask you, are you pursuing righteousness to the extent that you can actually suffer for it? In your workplace, if you pursue righteousness, doing what is right there, you will often find that you are persecuted because you cannot match up with what your bosses want, the unrighteous things that they desire. I spent many years, six years, working at McDonald's, and I was often asked to, we had the dates that were supposed to put out on the, on the various kinds of foods for how long it was supposed to be out. Of course, it would be out for a while, and we wouldn't use it all, and so the head manager would come by and say, look, look you know, I've reset the, the date, the little date thing, you, know, you just move across the buns or whatever it is, and it puts a new date on. It's really easy. You just put it right over the top. I need you to do that. Just remark this stuff because we need another day. Well, then I know that's against company policy. I know that's against everything that's supposed to, to happen, what we're supposed to do. And what do I say? I'm sorry, I can't do that. I can't, that, that's, that's not righteous, it's not the right thing for me to do, that's dishonest because I'm, I'm, I'm marking over the very thing that we're, supposed to, that we're supposed to get rid of these, I know it's going to cause you to lose money. Well, as you can imagine, that didn't make me very popular, and there were other things, but I'm sure you've probably faced more, and more difficult things than that, many of you. Well, do what is right and suffer for it, rather than again doing what is wrong. Our loyalty to Christ and His righteousness must, all, must always come before the culture, Luke 9, 26, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he returns in glory and the glory of the Father and of his holy angels. Our loyalty to Christ is first. When we are righteous and serving Christ, then we will suffer and we may not deny Christ in our words or in our actions so that we don't suffer because it is very tempting to do so. It, 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 we wrestle with the difficulties of being righteous and being persecuted for it. Now, again, we're not the first century. We're not the first people that has ever, you know, that has wrestled with these things. The second century Christian leader, Tertullian, was once approached by a man in his congregation who said, I've come to Christ. I don't know what to do. I have a job that I don't think is consistent with what the Scripture teaches. What should I do? I have to live. To which Tertullian responded, must you? Loyalty to Christ is the Christian's only true choice. And when you are loyal to Christ, you will suffer. This is what he has promised. Well, what's the result of this persecution? What, what, what's, what's the benefit? What's the blessedness here ultimately? It's not so much in the suffering itself. We're not supposed to say, well, that really hurt and that's great. That's not the issue. I loved it that my family member was killed. That's not what we're saying. The blessedness is in the result. Now, it can be experienced in the moment. It, we don't have to wait till the end. We'll see that in just a minute. But ultimately, why are we blessed when we suffer? Because ours is the kingdom of heaven. It is the indication that we are actually citizens of the kingdom. That's what persecution is. It is our, the mark of true citizenship. Now, hear me carefully. Persecution doesn't get you into the kingdom. You don't have to somehow do things that, you know, if I'll just get persecuted enough or harmed enough, then I can earn my way into the kingdom. That'll, that'll get me in. No, you're only persecuted for true righteousness if you're already in Anyone who's not in the kingdom can't be persecuted for righteousness because they're not righteous. They haven't been granted the righteousness of Christ. They haven't been justified and they haven't been given the power for any kind of true Christ-conforming righteousness because they're not believers. So they're suffering for their own selfishness even when it was for doing good acts if they're suffering. 
Only believers can actually suffer for the kingdom. And so it is a joyful mark to you that you're a believer when you suffer for seeking to be more Christ-like and for seeking to have others be more Christ-like as well as you proclaim the gospel. And so that's why it's blessed to you because when you suffer, you're like, ah, I'm in the kingdom. I'm a citizen. This very persecution means that the world, the citizens of the world don't like me because I'm part of this country. It is your mark of being a true citizen. And really, then you get the benefits of the kingdom. Notice there's a shift from the future tense to the present tense. At the beginning of the Beatitudes, verse 3, it was, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, or blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And it's fascinating when he mentions this, when he talks about having the kingdom of heaven, he uses present tense there. He then uses future tense for the others. They will be fully realized when the kingdom is fully manifested, when the king returns. But in this case, when you are poor in spirit, as in verse 3, when you are being persecuted, because by the way, that happens before the kingdom is finally manifested. It's a good thing that yours is the kingdom right now when you're persecuted, because really when the king returns again, there isn't any more persecution after that. It's the only time you get to experience this beatitude. And so it's evidence that the blessings of the kingdom are yours right now. All of the benefits of being a citizen are we can rejoice in those when we're persecuted, because it's evidence that we are experiencing the blessedness of the, of the current kingdom. We might call it the, the kingdom uh, in which the, the church is being used by God to accomplish His work. But then it also means you will participate in the blessings of the millennial kingdom when the king returns and then of the eternal kingdom. That's how joyful persecution is. You're in the kingdom now receiving its benefits. You will receive all the benefits of the later aspects of the kingdom as well. And your persecution proves that. It demonstrates its reality. James 1.12 says, blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. You're being blessed now as you persevere. You will receive the ultimate blessing when the king returns. So stay with it as you go through trial. Don't give up. Mark 13, 13, you will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Stay with it. Recognize that persecution is bringing blessedness. Blessedness now as you are in the kingdom and blessedness in the future as that kingdom is fully realized when our king returns. Well, then he does a fascinating thing, Jesus does. He's been using really the third person, speaking to the audience in general, speaking to those who have these characteristics of those who are in the kingdom. But notice that there's a shift in verse 11, as this is the only beatitude that he fleshes out right here. We'll talk more about the other aspects of beatitudes all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. We're not done with that. But he takes some time at this point to then switch from the third person to the second person and give further explanation of this why. I think one very possible reason, maybe the primary one, is that he begins to focus then on his disciples who are right there, the 12. doesn't mean this doesn't apply to everyone else as well, but he's been speaking of everyone in the kingdom in general. Now he says you, plural you, blessed are you, and very likely first and foremost referring to his disciples. Why? Because each one of them, History records, as our best understanding, was to suffer a martyr's death or at least a death that was a result directly related to their service of Christ. Because all of the other ones that we know of through history were actually killed, put to death early, martyred because of their faith. John was the only one who lived to old age, but where did he do that? First, by the way, if you study the, the history that we have of John, they did try to martyr him several times, they tried to boil him alive a couple times. And then they couldn't kill him, so they stuck him on the island of Patmos and he died there in exile saying, you disciples need to understand this is going to happen to you. And he tells his disciples this over and over. The closer he gets to the cross, he keeps gathering them around and saying, you're going to be persecuted. They're going to drag you before the courts. 
They're going to harm you. They needed to know this. They needed to understand. This is true for every believer, but it seems like he's just making it more personal. That seems to be the idea here. You, and maybe he pointed at them. I don't know. Remember, his disciples came and sat down while everyone else was listening. You are going to suffer. Guys, we're disciples of Christ, each of us, true believers. You, this, is, this, this clarification, this personalization is for you as well. It's not just general people in the kingdom. It's you, precious congregation. This is you if you're a true believer. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Here are the specifics of persecution. Again, the blessedness, he's just reiterating that joyful contentedness flowing from being a recipient of God's loving, kind, unmerited favor. Yes, even in persecution. And this is persecution's difficulty. So the specifics are persecution is difficult for these reasons. It involves insults, like insults. How difficult is that? Well, let me, let me ask you, how eager are you to go out and tell unbelievers and people you don't know about the gospel? That will tell you how difficult insults are because no one's going to kill you when you go to their door, but they may very well insult you. They may call you a fool. Even if they don't say anything, that very look as you're standing at their door, doesn't it make you shiver? They start to open the door and they look at you and it's like the, the, the despising look on their face gets the moment they open that door. And you think, here I am, I'm trying to do something good and I'm being looked at like a fool. I don't need that. I'm tired of that. You're trying to do that in your family over and over again. You're trying to bring the gospel to bear and they just look at you like, you're an idiot. You're not being an idiot. You're just trying to bring the gospel to bear, gracious, loving. You're not saying it every five seconds, let's break open the Bible, but you're always trying to draw things back because if they die, they're going to go to hell. And, they, and you, you see the look, don't you? you? You start to bring up spiritual things like, oh, shut off, you're a jerk. That's how it works. That's how powerful insults, insults are because you stop. So do I. They're very, very powerful. Why don't we have 50 people out for evangelism implosion every week? Well, one of the reasons is you don't have time. That is, you are actually doing worthwhile things that you're accomplished in. But there's another reason. And it's that you don't want to be insulted. It's just no fun. Why would I spend my Saturday morning having people look at me like I'm an idiot? I really don't want that. There's other reasons, fear, but it's, it's bound up. The fear is bound up in this. So unless we say, well, insults aren't that big a deal, they certainly are because it keeps us from witnessing the way that we're supposed to. They're a big deal. Now, Jesus was insulted. He was horribly insulted, and he was insulted while he was alive. He was insulted as he was dying. He was also insulted as he was alive. Matthew 10, 25 says, is it, enough? it is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. I think the disciples, every time they heard that, they were like, oh, let's not go there. When he starts saying, look, you need to be like me. You're, you're the slaves, I'm the master, and it's enough. The only thing you should really want is to be like me. I think they were like, could you stop now? Because I'm not sure we really like that. Because always after that came some incredibly challenging thing that Jesus was about to bring. He reminds them that they're slaves, reminds them that he's their master, not apart from his being their loving, gracious God, but along with that, he says, it's enough for a disciple that he become like his teacher, a slave like his master. If they've called the head of the master Beelzebul, excuse me, if they've called the head of the house Beelzebul, Satan, the devil, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Jesus came, the king of kings and lord of lords, and they, they said, you are Satan. You are the devil. They said that to him as he walked upon this earth, the very king of kings and lord of lords who created them and was going to die for them. That's not insulting. You think Jesus said, oh, that's no big deal. These are my very people for whom I'm about to die, the ones, and particularly there is ethnic people that he treated all the way down, cared for all the way down through to preserve a remnant of them to that very day. And they look at them and they say, 
They look at him and say, you're Satan. The work you do is by Satan. It's an insult of the highest level. Jesus said, if they did it to me, what are they going to do to you? What kind of insults are they going to bring to you? When Jesus was on the cross, Mark 15, 32, well, first Matthew 27, 39, those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads. He was receiving the physical persecution, which is the second one on your outline. There's insults and persecution. This comes under persecution's difficulty. He was receiving the physical persecution, which is focused on by that second word, but as he was being physically persecuted, they were verbally abusing him, insult to injury, the ultimate form of it. They're passing by, hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads. I mean, they can't even keep themselves, their bodies, can't even keep their bodies contained. Oh, man. I mean, you've probably seen that, haven't you? Maybe in your family. Oh, here we go again. Right? Wagging their heads. And what are they saying to Jesus? Mark 15, 32 says what they're saying. Let this Christ, this so-called Messiah dripping with sarcasm. Let this deliverer, this anointed one, who, oh, by the way, is hanging on a cross, and anyone who hangs on a cross is what? Cursed of God. Anointed one? I don't think so. Cursed of God? I think so. So here they are wagging their head. Let this Christ, this so-called anointed one, and he was their anointed one. He was from God. He was their Savior. And they walk by wagging their head, saying, this Christ, the King of Israel, to them, he was king of nothing. You didn't come and deliver us. You didn't come and save us. You didn't cast off the Roman Empire. Who's, who's, that, who's that king of Israel who's standing down at the bottom of your cross? Who just nailed your hands to the cross? Oh, the Roman Empire. I guess you failed. Can you see it? It was evil. It was sick. They were coming at him with everything they could. You lost. You're a loser. You're nothing. You're not the anointed one. You're not the king. You're sitting there on a cross. You're, 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 you're strung up there on a cross. Let him now come down from the cross that we may see and believe as though that's possible. They already knew or they wouldn't ever have expected it because they didn't believe it was true in the first place. It wasn't like they were actually looking for that sign. They knew in their minds it couldn't happen. Now, it could have. But the moment that he came down, he would have been what? No longer the Savior. He would have been everything they thought he was. Instead, he was just the opposite of what they thought he was, so he stayed there. Because you're going to get insulted. You're going to get persecuted. The second one is physical persecution. You're going to have people false speak, false evil speech against you. So false and evil speech, that is slender. People are going to come up with all kinds of things. This text says, and they falsely say all kinds of evil against you. <clears throat> Personal attacks, finding fault with, with the things that you have done, coming after you to find anything they possibly can so that they don't have to believe what you say. Now, this has been true all throughout Christianity. How about the early church? Do you realize what Christians were accused of being very early on? They were accused of being atheists. Why? Because they didn't bow down to the many idols that were there. They served a God you couldn't see. No idols. You guys are atheists. You don't even believe in a God, they were called. They were told this. They, they were accused of being immoral because they would meet together, often in secret, so they weren't persecuted, and they heard words of this love feast that they would have, this communion that they had. But they were celebrating the elements, as we will do in just a moment. Now, this is immoral. There's something going on here. They talk of this love that they have for one another. This is weird. This is twisted. So they're accused of being immoral. They're accused of being unpatriotic. Why? Because they wouldn't profess their loyalty to the emperor. They said, we have one king. It wasn't that they didn't serve the emperor. They did. They did everything he said. They went to death under the hands of the emperor doing what he said. But they said, we will not call you the king. And they said, well, you're unpatriotic. Oh, that's coming, by the way. Oh, it's coming. So governments do. They call you unpatriotic when you won't 
give loyalty to them, so they kill you for it. Most likely coming, maybe not here, maybe not in our lifetimes, but it certainly happens in many countries. Don't follow our governmental rules, you're unpatriotic, we'll kill you. It's slander, it's not true. It's not true. The Christians in China say this, we'll do everything you say, government, everything. We'll be harmed, we'll do all of these things to serve what your, your rules, but we won't call you kings and we won't stop meeting as believers, and we won't believe what you are trying to force down our throats. We'll do everything else. You can kill us, but we won't obey you as, as far as by calling you king. So it's, it was slander. They weren't actually immoral. They weren't atheistic, and they weren't unpatriotic. That is, they were actually living for the good of their country, but they were killed. Notice again, persecution's object here. So that's the specifics of persecution's difficulty. You will receive all of these things or at least you have the potential for all of them, insults, persecution, false, evil speech, slander. Because you faced it at work, I'm sure. If you are living for Christ at work, the word is out. I'm like, yeah, don't, don't, don't mess with that guy. You don't want to sit around. If that guy takes you out to lunch, don't go. Because he's got an agenda. That, that guy, he's a fanatic. Right? He's, he's a weirdo. It's out. It's out. If you're a real Christian, it's out. I spent one week at work. I worked at Popeye's. It was my first job. I spent a week there. Someone came up to me and said, you're a Christian, aren't you? I'm thankful that they knew that right up front. It was my goal by the Lord's grace to do that. They said, we're coming for you. I said that to my face. We're coming for you. We'll make you look like us before you're done. Words out. If you're really a believer, they're coming for you because you make them look ungodly as they are. Not because you say that necessarily, but because you live that. Now, again, the persecution's object, why, says when you face all these things, when they falsely say all kinds of evil against you, why? Because of me. That's just the same way of saying for righteousness sake, because of Christ. You're doing all that in the name of Christ. So don't, by the way, make up your own righteousness. As I've got my own standards and I'm being persecuted because I've got these standards that are way past anything Christ ever wanted or thought. I live by these. I'm maybe bigger than Christ. I've got all these standards and I'm getting, I'm getting persecuted because, you know, these are my own. No, you only be persecuted because of Christ. If he said it, then you do it. If he wants you to look like it, then you are. If it's part of his wisdom, then you proclaim it. Otherwise, get rid of it and be persecuted because you look like Jesus, you talk about Jesus, and you want other people to know Jesus because of me, he says. Not your church, per se. Not great. You, don't get, you don't suffer because of Grace Community Church, because of a certain legalistic standard, improper standard that you might have. You don't suffer for your own agenda. You don't suffer because you don't like government. You suffer for Christ. And that's, by the way, the only reason that you can do number 12, or verse 12, which is rejoice and be glad. This is persecution's joy. You can't take joy in suffering when you're not suffering for Christ. There's no joy in it. You shouldn't. It's back to what, what credit is there. If you do anything other than what's for Christ and you suffer for it, there's no benefit. Respond, be godly, get the benefit of, of, of repenting and believing or repenting and turning, turning away from your sin, but rejoice and be glad. Guys, these words are so powerful. They're over-the-top words. Jump up and down for joy. Rejoice exceedingly. When, when they come together, it's like, it's like not only rejoice, but rejoice and keep on rejoicing with an overflow of joy that God would bring this and bring this punishment. Is that even possible? How about Acts 5.41? So they went on their way from the presence of the council. This is the apostles. You think they got the message? When he sits down and says, you, you will suffer. You are blessed. You apostles are blessed because of the sufferings that you will face. Rejoice and be glad when that happens. And then they are dragged before the, before the city council after Jesus is, is, goes back to the Father. 
and they're, they're saying, look, we're gonna, they were beaten, and then we're going to kill you if you do this anymore. And in Acts 5.41, they went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing. They got the message that they had been considered worthy to suffer for his name. Now, I, I don't have time this morning to flesh out why you would find joy in trial, why you would find joy in persecution. I can only give you one point on it. Right, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. You don't have to turn there. It's in the, it's in the context of persecution. If necessary, for a little while, now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. That the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found a result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And here's why. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. The only way you can rejoice in suffering and in persecution is if you know it is for your Savior and for the purpose of making you look like your Savior. It's the only way you will ever rejoice. If you want something else, if you want to look like the world, if you want to just have worldly relationships and, and everything will be fine for you, if you want to be comfortable and satisfied you will, on this earth, you will never rejoice in tribulation and persecution. In fact, no unbeliever can ever rejoice in persecution because they don't, their highest goal is not to know Jesus and not to love Him more. Those of you who are memorizing Philippians, we're doing our quiz meet today over chapter 3, but remember chapter 2? That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings. That's why you rejoice because in suffering and in persecution for him, you know him greater, you love him more, your relationship is deeper, and you look like him, and so you love it. It's the only way you could ever rejoice. Not because it's fun or happy or joyful when people die and when you're insulted. That's not the joy. The joy is you know Jesus more. And that's the, that's the reality of communion that we're about to take. Communion. We commune with him. We, we have fellowship with him in his sufferings as we remember the, the elements of, simply elements, not in and of themselves, having any efficaciousness or, or anything, simply the remembrance of the efficacious work of Christ on our behalf. That's persecution's reward. We won't get to the last one, persecution's forerunners, because I want you to turn, as we now turn towards communion, considering the reward and why it is a reward for us to suffer because our Savior suffered, turn to First Peter, and if the men would come, if everyone would turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, I just want to tie this together for you in kind of a final way as we see our suffering in relationship to the suffering of Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2. The text says this, beginning in verse 21. I've already read a portion of it. For you have been called for this purpose, that is suffering, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Verse 24, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you have been healed. Why do we rejoice in suffering? Because we, in suffering, we commune with our Savior who suffered for us. Paul says, I, I rejoice to fill up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. That is, Christ has suffered fully for our atonement and then he left to be in heaven so that we might continue the suffering now to see others come to know him. We rejoice in it because people will know him and people will be conformed to his image when we suffer. But that only has meaning because he suffered. 
And that's what we celebrate. And so as I pass the elements, as we begin with the bread, the question I have for you is this. Have you been avoiding suffering by refusing to live righteously? If you don't live the first seven Beatitudes, you're not going to get to number eight. You're going to jump past it. You're going to avoid it. And even if you are living one through seven, are you still hedging your bet against direct persecution by refusing to participate in things that you know will bring difficulty? It scares you. Because that's just something we all have to repent of. You're not alone. I sit next to people and refuse to share with them because I'm ashamed. Because I don't want to be seen as an idiot. And I'm ashamed of that. And so you're not alone. But there's no excuse. Because Jesus was not ashamed of us. And he died for us that we might do this 